0: Welcome to another episode of Jazz Is Not What You Think. This episode has a bit of a twist. A conversation with best-selling author Joshua Cooper Ramo. Joshua's latest book, The Seventh Sense, is all about the power of networks. From ancient China to today. It's a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. And in his book and on this podcast, Joshua helps to explain what happens to a society that is constantly connected. Please be sure to like and share this podcast with friends and log on to jazziz.com for more. And now, please enjoy a conversation with Joshua Cooper Ramo.
1: Hey, Michael, how hey. are you? Good, how are you? Thanks for doing this.
0: Uh, so where are you in Europe? You're with family. I am, and we're visiting my wife's family in rural Germany. I can't believe that um, I, I had just left Time Warner when you, I think you became the editor there at Time Magazine. And Yeah, uh, or the, maybe the senior editor or
1: foreign editor. I never was the overall editor, but yeah. When, what, what year was that?
0: I was there in 93, 94, 95. Yeah, that was right when I joined. What a and, place! What were you doing? Well, what happened is uh, Jerry Levin and Bob Morgado had an idea that they were going to do music magazines on the Warner side, oh. and and literally as soon as I signed the deal for Jazz Is with with Warner, I get a call from Don Logan. Of course. And, and Don Don said, Hey, can you meet me in New York? Because Warner's doing music magazines, and we're the music magazine company. Uh, we're the magazine company, and uh, I'd right. like to meet with you. And we had you know, a string of fantastic meetings, which I got to know Don pretty well. And uh, and ultimately what happened was when Warner was beginning to enter into the kind of AOL acquisition, or whatever you call it at the time, um, yeah. we, actually, we kind of extricated ourselves. There were three magazines at the same time. That uh, decided that, hey, maybe maybe it's time to get out. And it was actually Vibe Magazine, which was Quincy Jones, Martha Stewart Living. Yeah. Uh, and all three of us got out at the same time and just went on our own.
1: That was a good decision.
0: Yes, yes. Poor people
1: at Time, Inc. are still struggling with the effects of that merger.
0: Yeah, and there's all kinds of rumors that Hearst may buy them and uh, Bronfman may buy them. And, you know, who knows? But it's, it's you know, as I, I guess hard. It's a good segue into your latest book because obviously things are changing and and networks have a, a lot, if not everything, to do with it. So I just wanted to introduce you on air by saying Great. I'm speaking with Joshua Cooper-Ramo, who just about a year ago, about a year ago the book came out? Exactly. Uh, New York Times and Washington Post bestseller, The Seventh Sense, Power, Fortune, and Survival in the Age of Networks. Now, one of the things, Joshua, that I loved about your book, just jumping into it, is sort of the beginning of the book when you start talking about Master Nan. Um, To me, that really pulled me in because I wanted to know more about Master Nan. And can you tell us a little bit what it was like back then? I'm assuming back – you were already an an editor at the time and you decided to go to China. And what was that – could you tell me what was going on in your life then that – Kind of
1: how this evolved? Sure. And uh, first, let me say it's great to be with you and great to have a chance to talk to you and your audience about this. And I, I hope I can say some stuff that's uh, that's helpful to people. Thank you. Uh, so I, I'd actually left journalism. Uh, I left journalism in 2001 and had moved to China and met Master Nan a few years after I'd moved to China. Uh, for people who haven't read the book, the, the book is about this idea. Uh, that the world is now changing so dramatically and in such sort of surprising and confusing ways, uh, you know, with everything from strange political to economic uh, turmoil around the world, that it requires a new instinct to understand that. And so the book is a story of that instinct. And Master Nan it was a great uh, Chinese uh, sort of scholar and practitioner of Buddhism and Taoism, a, a amazing historian and expert uh, on Confucianism, really one of the great living um, kind of carriers of Chinese tradition. Uh, who had traveled around the world and, and returned to China and set up his own uh, private school uh, near Shanghai. Uh, and uh, I had the chance uh, through some friends to get to know him uh, and go spend time with him. And it was one of these really um, amazing experiences. You know, before I moved to China, one of my friends pulled me aside a dinner and put his arm around me and said, look, uh, it's great that you're going. And as important as being bilingual is, You also need to try to be bicultural. Um, And at that time, I was just studying Chinese, and it was a really great insight. Uh, you know, I work all day long in Chinese, but what you realize very quickly is that people you're talking to have a different way of seeing the world in many cases than you do. And that cultural element of it is particularly important. So one of the real gifts of spending time with Master Nan was I, I began to learn to think and see in a very different way. Uh, and as I explained in the book, uh, you know, this, this idea of the seventh sense it is a way that it turns out is extremely useful for understanding a world that, that is in constant turmoil
0: and change. Wow. And one of the things that um, I can't, I don't remember whether I read it about you or, or if, I, if I recall it was in the book. One of the things that Master Nan said, which is really kind of a, a great introduction to everyone listening about this book, is he said something along the lines that the faster we move, the sicker we get.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And tell me about that. One of because-
1: his, uh, you know, I think one of his ideas, one of the things he said that really struck me. And uh, was an inspiration for the book in many ways is he was talking he, he was always very interested in the way and this is kind of a traditional View of Chinese philosophy. How does the world around us affect us? Uh, you know, so much of Western philosophy begins with how do we how can we affect the world around us? And the Chinese view is that actually the world around us is a lot bigger than us And so therefore you ought to pay a lot of attention to that And Masternant had a great historical sense and one of the things he said to me once he said look if you look at the 19th century Everybody's getting packed into these cities, industrialization was running really fast, and the disease of that era really was reflective of, of kind of a failure to understand what was happening and plan for it, which was pneumonia and these you know, vast contagions and flus and so forth. Mm-hmm. He said in the 20th century, we surrounded ourselves with all this plastic and all these new objects and stuff, the disease of the 20th century was cancer. And he said mm-hmm. in the 21st century, everybody is going to be connected to everybody else at instant speed all the time, all around the world. And the result of that is going to be uh, what he called a jing sheng mao bing, which means essentially sort of spiritual illness, that that'll be the disease that marks our age because our, our brains are simply not wired for a world in which we are hyperconnected. Uh, not simply in terms of we're always looking at our screens or wasting time and these kind of things, but more that the the nature of connected systems is so different from these individualistic systems that we're used to, that none of us are psychologically prepared for it. And, and as a result, the faster we move into that world, the sicker we're going to get, the worse this spiritual illness is going to get, unless we develop some new ways to think about it, which is you know, one of the things he challenged me to do and that I try to explore uh, in the book.
0: Well, you know, it's it's funny that you say that because the, uh, as you may know, in addition to being a jazz nut and very much interested in culture, um, my day gig, if you would, is I'm a nuclear radiologist. And I yep. was, I was, um, I, he wasn't my master, although the more I think about it, maybe he was. My master was a guy named Dr. Robert Cade. And and Dr. Cade had this idea because he would force us to think about things differently. But it was a very basic idea back, you know, 40 years ago that um, he was going to make a drink that would make athletes feel better. And people thought he was, you know, a nut job. And they said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you know, we're in Florida and, you know, these football players get out there on the field. It's 90 degrees. They run out of energy. I think it's electrolyte based. So he essentially we would run around the University of Florida campus. We'd wear plastic gloves. We'd collect sweat. I was much more athletic at the time. And we'd analyze the electrolytes. And that became the formula for the drink and and because we're we're at the university of florida and there was the florida gators naturally he called the drink gatorade and incredible it was that ideology of thinking about things differently that i can see when i read your bio and your books that they had seismic changes in the direction or the things that you write about and you know for example i i can i have a few mentors myself that had I not been introduced to them, like you were to master non, I may, I may have taken a different course. And, and yeah, so yeah. I, I, you know, I, I remember something as silly as I remember when I was in radiology residency, I had a mentor in radiology who would make us read x-rays upside down because it, wow. would, for, it would force you to look at it differently. Yeah. And, and, that's very and, interesting. And, and when I was reading your book, I, I kind of, it kind of brought me back to those days. And you know, the, the, the interesting thing that I, I also found in the beginning of the book with Master Nan is that this sort of concept of your spirit has to move first. Um, yeah. that classical wisdom survives. Those kinds of things that I, I read, that those messages that you had in your book. Tell me about some of those when you were writing. Well, you know,
1: that first one is very interesting because Master Nan's first sort of spiritual discipline was that he trained to be a sword fighter. And one of the things about the great Asian martial arts traditions, whether it's sword fighting or archery or kind of the ones people in the West may be more familiar with, uh, they all have at, at their core sort of a level of spiritual refinement. It's not about getting tough and learning how to hit in the right places. It's about refining your internal sense so well that you are prepared for anything that comes at you And therefore, your reaction to it is just pure calm instinct in the way you might pick up a glass or pick up a fork or, uh, you know, open your eyes to just make it that fundamental and simple. But as a result, the core element of the training is not training you to hit harder, run faster. Those may be important elements, but it is about really refining your soul. And that's done through poetry and calligraphy and study of the arts and meditation and all these things that have nothing to do with the actual physical martial art itself. And so... I think, you know, what that idea, uh, which was a, an idea of Master Nanz, that the spirit moves first and then the sword moves, if you're a really great sword fighter, I think is very applicable to this age where we're confronted with problems that we couldn't have anticipated. And puzzles that are just very perplexing, right? I mean, just from from my interest is, is, is in the, what I try to tackle. The book has a lot to do with politics and economics. And sure. you look around the world and you say, how is it we live in this incredibly po- prosperous age, but there's still, uh, you know, the kind of the destruction of the middle class going on. Why is it that the most expensive war and terrorism in human history has kind of produced more terrorists and not seem to have solved that problem? And there's so many of these puzzles out there. And a lot of them have to do with the fact that there are new forces at work in the system. So Master Nan's idea is if you wanna understand that world, you really have to refine your spirits. So you can be prepared to react to it just like a martial arts fighter would react to, to a sword attack. You have to be ready to react to these unseen forces that are suddenly showing up everywhere and really challenging the, the old logic of power.
0: Yeah, and I, and I also, one of the take homes I had when I was in my training, um, the way I learned to be good at what I did was through much humiliation. Um, mm. And, and I, I, I see that was look, sort of a, a tactic, if you would, for Master Nan, where you were humiliated to the point where it, it, it struck a chord with you, you remembered, and that was a lesson learned.
1: Yeah, he, and one of the great things about Chinese teaching is they, they the Chinese teaching methods believe that your emotions have a lot to do with how you learn that you learn differently when you're happy or you're sad and so therefore the manipulation the emotions is an important part of the manipulation of the mind and so there were times where i would say something and Master Nan would just relentlessly come after me and say that doesn't make any sense how are you thinking about that and probably like a great medical school teacher would and it's right. that kind of forcing you to tear down your assumptions and rebuild them from scratch uh, that's really the process that leads to, to insight and enlightenment, uh, but that's not an easy process to do I mean, I think that's why you know so many people want to hold on to old ideas because it's often very hard to let go of them and accept new ones
0: Well, if you there was a movie out a couple of years ago uh, by a director who just had all those awards for La La Land His first film was Whiplash. I don't know if you had a chance yeah. to see that, but it was oh, a What a
1: fantastic film.
0: Yeah, and, and, and talk about humiliation and intimidation turned into a great drummer
1: uh, I cannot recommend that movie enough. That last scene is one of the most magical moments in cinema.
0: Absolutely. So I wanted to talk about move quickly into networks. Um, one of the things sure. that, the, the event that you really drove home and it was, I think, was not an epiphany just for me. I think a lot of people that read the book said, I, I know something now that I didn't know before I read this book. It's scary, but at the same time, when I got done with your book, there was comfort. I almost felt like You say don't be afraid of this because the very problem this created it will also be the solution
1: yeah so you know by networks uh what i mean is not just things like the internet but any collection of connected points or people or objects or ideas is a network right so financial markets are a network people live in beijing is a network Uh, uh, people being computer diagnosed with uh, diseases is a network All of these are uh, collections of points that are linked together. And what's different about our world today is that there are more of these points linked together than ever before. And that includes things like hedge funds and terrorists and political extremists and all kinds of of, of people who uh, are now part of the same mesh that we are a part of. And these networks have laws and rules of their own. So the basic idea of the book is really to try to say, look, a, a connected object is different than one that's not connected, whether that is a connected terrorist or a connected voter, or a connected dollar, a connector music, connected musician. Well, think about how all those things and the meaning of those things change as, as a result of the fact that they're connected to one another, or connected to social networks. And what I wanted to try to do was really to begin to tease out of that an explanation of just what some of the rules of power would be in this new world. And the conclusion I came to, which I, I think is sort of uh you know d- d- touches a little bit on the on the question you just asked is you know the shift we're about to undergo if you think about all of human history that there was this massive shift which occurred uh starting about 600 years ago with the reformation that began the reformation and then the enlightenment and then the renaissance and the scientific revolution and the industrial revolution and that really made the modern world and that process on the one hand was one of the most if not the most destructive process in human history it wiped out almost every institution in Europe. There were entire countries that got left behind. But at the same time, it created the modern world that we know now. I think the shift to a world of connection is going to be very similar. It is going to uproot a lot of the old power rules that we thought we knew. It is going to take apart many of the institutions that we once relied on. Uh, You and I both have a background in the magazine industry, right? Just think what connectivity has done to that traditional role. Think about what it's going to do to your world of of radiology uh, as artificial intelligence uh, machines start reading x-rays and and, uh, MRIs. So all sorts of old rules of power are going to change, but what is likely to emerge at the end of that, if we manage it properly, could actually be something pretty spectacular. But it doesn't mean that this uh, isn't a really terrifying time. It doesn't mean that there's also the possibility of something really horrible uh, emerging on the other side if we're not careful.
0: Yeah. And and you said something also that I, I really, I, I wanted you to dig deeper into a little bit. Network power can be mapped.
1: Yeah. So I think one of the main points that I you know want to make in the book is that I wanted to make in the book is that there is a way to understand why these why these forces emerge. So one of the ideas I have is that there are certain people who kind of look at the world and see the way that network systems produce new powers. Right? You and I might look at a car and we think, oh, that's a car. The guys from Uber looked at it and said, hey, a connected car creates a totally new kind of economics. Uh, the Airbnb guys looked at spare bedrooms and had the same thought. And there are folks who have an ability to look at these connected systems and really understand the way in which they work in an intuitive fashion. And, and those are the folks who are building great fortunes and new opportunities and, and, and the sort of incredible things that are defining, you might say, the sort of optimistic part of our world at the moment. Well, all of those systems can be mapped and understood. Uh, they are, all have certain rules of how they exist. Uh, in network science, they call them topologies. And I spend a lot of time in the book talking about how do you navigate these topologies. So we spend time in the book, for instance, traveling around with some of the greatest hackers working today, uh, not because we want to learn how to break into computer systems, but because they actually understand a lot about kind of where, where these maps really uh, show strength and where they show vulnerability. Um, you know, we spend time with uh, people who are thinking about problems of artificial intelligence in the book as a way to kind of get at the roots of the problems that emerge there. So that's the idea. There, there are new power maps that are emerging on these systems. And first of all, they are understandable, but secondly, we should try to understand them because one of the things that they do is they put an incredible amount of power in the hands of a very few people in some cases, right? So the guys who run Google or Facebook, these are some of the most powerful people on the planet right now. Uh, And they're powerful because we use those systems. And so we should be thoughtful about uh, how do we use them? How are those systems regulated? Who has the power? What do they use it for? Uh, all these are the kinds of questions that we need to ask. But in order to ask those questions, we've got to have some basic understanding of just why the systems work the way they do. And and, and that, that understanding is what I call the seventh sense. It's really kind of the story of this book.
0: You know, your your seventh sense, uh, while I was reading it, uh, it was when actually uh, President Trump was beginning his pretty active campaign. And um, I had a a, a suspicion that there was a network involved uh, in the process. And then now that he's been elected, I think that the seventh sense helped me understand how he got elected.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, Trump is definitely the, you know, the, a president of the network age. Uh, without, you know, making any judgment, everybody should have, can have their own political opinion about it. But just from a power perspective, uh, you know, if you ask yourself, how is it uh, that a guy uh, who, who nobody thought, you know, if we if we'd sat here three years ago and we said, look, who's going to get the nominee, right? You're down in Florida, right? You're a former Florida governor who is a princeling of the Republican yep. Party and you know, raised whatever, $150 million for the primaries, or Donald Trump, who's likely to get the nomination. Uh, both of us would have said Jeb Bush. The reality <laughs> is that Trump was able to use incredibly powerful forces of social media uh, combined with using some forces Uh, that are sort of inherent and latent in existing media uh, to really reach a new kind of audience with a new kind of campaign. At the same time, the landscape that he was addressing and part of the frustrations that he was addressing uh, with people were largely caused by forces of the network age. So one of the points I make in the book is that, you know, the old political debate used to be be between left and right. And the new political debate is between open and closed. Do you want to be a part of a system? Do you want to be closed? So Brexit is an example of that. Trump's wall is an example of that. In a connected world, that core question of are you in or are you out? What are you connected to? It turns out to be a very important question. That was an incredibly resonant question, I think, for a lot of the people who voted for Donald Trump. What are we connected to and what is it doing to our lives, to our economy, and to our security?
0: Well, and that's great. And the other thing that you know was a, a real take home is that I think that people that read your book understand terrorism so much more because, as you pointed out, it's aimed at our psychology.
1: Yep, that's right. It's and when you think about it, I mean, it's really important to understand terrorism is not an existential threat to the United States. Uh, It's not gonna no terrorist attack is gonna wipe the entire country out in the way that, say, a nuclear weapon attack could have during the Cold War. But it, has an immense, it, is, it, is an, it is an activity designed to target people's brains, their psychology, and the world of networks, of instant connectivity, only makes it more effective. First of all, because it means anything that happens anywhere in the world is instantly beamed right to us. So it feels much more present than it might be geographically. And secondly, the nature of these connected systems is that they're filled with all sorts of vulnerabilities. And so anybody who can get anywhere inside the network really has an ability to make a, a, a kind of tremendous impact, right? It used to be that if you wanted to have a big impact in the world, you needed to have a big thing, right? If you wanted to, uh, you know, have a war, you needed a big army. If you wanted to cause a financial catastrophe, you needed a big market collapse. And now what we've seen is very small things, one terrorist attack, uh, one hedge fund trader, uh, you know, making a mistake on a trade. Any of these things can cause tremendously large impacts in the world. And so terrorism is an example of a small thing having a big effect uh, because the, the rules of the system are very different.
0: Yeah, and uh, you suggested also that the, you know, again, it may be a perceived decline of the United States, while it may be transient, it is in some ways created by and will be solved by networks. Yeah, the core question of American foreign policy right
1: now, uh, which is probably also the most important question kind of in, in global geostrategy, is, is the United States going to continue to be a dominant superpower? Uh, that's a super important question. Uh because if you look at all of history, you sort of have one view of history that, that says, particularly if you look at, at European history, that says, you know, superpowers get about 100 years and then they're done. So the Dutch had 100 years, then the French, and then the British came along, then the United States, and everybody ran for about a century. And well, maybe the United States' century is up, but somebody else is due to take over. It it turns out that that is actually one way of looking at at history. But if you look at all of human history, what we know is that there are also systems and empires that last hundreds of years. Uh, The Roman Empire is the one people are probably the most familiar with, but the Assyrians, the Chin, the Mughal, there's a long list of of empires. And if you look at all of human history, about half of the time is dominated uh, by these particular systems that dominate large parts of the world. The reason that's relevant is that when you have a single dominant power, it tends to be a much more peaceful age. There are statistically a lot less wars when you have a single dominant power. The, the case in which you have the most wars tends to be when you have two powers that are sort of squabbling over who's up or who's down. And when you have many powers competing, that also can be a pretty violent time. But you know, we've lived in, in the last uh, period since the end of the Cold War in a period of really unprecedented peace. I mean, what you and I have enjoyed for the bulk of our lifetimes the ability to sort of travel freely to not feel some sort of existential dread or peril, uh, that's an incredible gift uh, because it means all of the energy and all of the the, the fear that's associated with disorder in the international system has been something that we've been able to put to the side and focus on other things. Mm-hmm. So this question of kind of what is the future of the United States power, even though it sounds like kind of an abstract question and maybe not a question that has much impact on people's lives, in fact, is is maybe one of the most important questions that's going to decide, you know, the the context in which we are all able to live our lives. And I think my point in the book is that if you really look at the network systems carefully, what you'll see is there's a logic there that suggests we actually can find a way uh, to stabilize the system, uh, to not have another period of of war and disaster. But it's going to take a lot of very energetic statesmanship. It'll take a, a vision for what the international system ought to look like. And there's a lot to be worried about because usually in history, anytime you have these major shifts of power, whether it's from one nation to another nation or during the industrial revolution where you had constant introduction of new weapon systems. And right now in the information revolution, we're seeing the constant introduction of new information-based weapon systems. These lead to wars. They lead to large scale international tragedy. And so we all ought to be very aware of what it is we should be trying to prevent right now.
0: Yeah. And uh, a sobering point that you mentioned was that it's quite possible that our leaders are not prepared for this.
1: Yeah, I think they're not for the most part. I mean, I, I think as, as somebody who spends a fair amount of time in Washington uh, and in, you know, in, obviously in New York and the financial world talking to people who think about this world, uh, there's almost no understanding of it. it there, there may be a dim intellectual understanding that the world has sort of changed, but an understanding really of the implications of it is is very rare to run into. And an, enc- an encounter with somebody who really understands why it's happening and the mechanics of it, and the gears of it, uh, in terms of the people who currently have power, uh, it's something I, I have to tell you, honestly, I've never really run into. You do have a lot of people in the world who understand how networks work, but they tend to mostly be younger. They're running internet companies. Um, they don't really understand or care much about politics or economics or these large scale questions. Um, and that's really a, a problem in the sense that what you would like to do is have the people who understand networks also be the people who have the most power and the people who understand power really have a feeling for, for how these connected systems are changing, uh, the policies that they choose to adopt.
0: Yeah, and I, I've thought about that a lot. You know, I know a lot of people are into tech. They don't know much about history. Then I know maybe an older crowd, if you would, very, very savvy on history, but don't know anything about technology. Does that mean we're sort of in a transition phase where eventually yeah. those older folks, if you would, I hate to sound cynical, but they're going to die out. Uh, the younger ones hopefully will uh, learn about history as they've learned about technology. And then might we be in a little bit safer place?
1: Yeah, that might be the case. But I think also we're having, you know, if you look at so much of our political energy in the world right now, it does resemble a lot of period like 1848, where you had something very similar in the middle of the Industrial Revolution, where there was this moment where society was poised to make a great uh, kind of jump ahead to a next level of science and industry. And there was just massive reaction all around Europe. Uh, from uh, you know a, a generation and a you know a very large swath of the population that didn't want railroads and mechanized agriculture and urbanization and all these things to uproot their habitual ways of living. So, you know, we will get to uh, you know inevitably we will get to the future uh, and a period where the the younger folks uh, who understand networks are in charge. I think the question is just sort of how. How uneasy is the transition uh, you know, to that point gonna be? And you know, what can we do to try to make sure that whatever does emerge in the future sort of
0: suits the values and ideals that we've always stood for? That's great. Now, the, one thing I did wanna ask you about, technology and diversity. One of the things that I find very interesting, and, and, and I know recently there have been companies that have tried to promote diversity through commercialism like Pepsi. But, but the thing that I find interesting about technology, the people in technology are in fact very diverse. And should the network be able to reflect that ethnicity from the people who build it?
1: One of the most important things about connected systems is that diversity is really a, is is a source of strength. Uh, and the reason for that, if you just think about it, you know, imagine the network uh, in any connected system as confronting you constantly with uh different kinds of problems that you have to solve think of it as a wall full of you know bolts and screws and nails and the reality is the more screwdrivers and uh wrenches and hammers you have the more effective you're going to be in getting things done so diversity is like that the world is constantly presenting us with new problems and the ability to make sure you honestly have different takes on something that you think about in in ways that you you know just by your own upbringing your own background can't think about problems uh, really is a mark of success. When you look at networks in the future, the most vibrant, the strongest uh, will be the ones that are the most diverse because that gives them the, the broadest range of action to respond to things and also creates the most possibility for creativity.
0: Wow. Well, I'm not going to let you off the hook until we talk about the music business. Obviously, that's uh, why we're here today. But the I remember when I sent you my first email, uh, you responded by saying, Hey, Gregory Porter on your cover. I like that. Um, you're, you're a music fan. What, what, what are some of your favorite artists?
1: Well, first of all, let me just say what a miracle it is of what technology has done for our ability to enjoy music. Uh, I mean, it just, it is, if you are a music, nut, the ability to constantly discover New and exciting uh, sounds that you haven't heard before. I mean, it's just what an incredibly special time to be alive. Uh, the technology for making the music has never been uh, you know, better. And I, for me, I just think there are things being made today that are absolutely immortal. Uh, What am I listening to at the moment? I'm I'm obsessed at the moment with an artist you may not know called FKJ, French Kiwi Juice, who's a French uh, producer. Uh, I very much encourage you to go uh, listen to his stuff. Some wonderful videos. He's sort of a combination of trip-hop and jazz. He's great. Uh, You know, I can never get enough uh, Kanye, so at the moment uh, I happen to be listening uh, to a fair amount of Kanye. I think we both share a love of jazz, uh, so you know, I never get tired of some of the old classics, but among kind of new jazz folks, I really like Jose James. I don't know if you've heard his stuff. Of course, of course. Terrific. Uh, you know, Greg Reporter's obviously uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, Michael Kiwanuka, I like very much. Yep. Um, there's just kind of endless amazing stuff to be, uh, to, to be listening to. And uh, to be honest with you, I've got a whole summer of uh, really exciting uh, music festivals and stuff on, on my calendar, probably the highlight of which will be seeing uh, Radiohead in Florence. And, wow. Uh, I think with Michael Kiwanuka opening for them. Ah, uh, but true. we're going in May uh, to 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 a weekend where there will be a Skrillex, who's fantastic, and James Blake and Solange. So, it's ah uh, uh, just if you like music,
0: wow, is this a great time to be alive? Absolutely, and you know the the it's, I think it's, in jazz, it's somewhat of a tipping point in that there's yeah. a new way for younger people to experience jazz that wasn't available to them before, and we're starting to see really a new wave of music listeners in the jazz space. That had we not been in the network technology we are on today, probably would not have happened.
1: Very interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. You know, we live in, in New York down in the village, uh, right near a bunch of jazz clubs. And I would say in the last four or five years, uh, the lines at the Village Vanguard, the lines at Smalls, they've gotten longer. Uh, and I think it's exactly what you're saying, which I hadn't thought about until you mentioned it, which is I think there's a new generation that's discovering that music.
0: I'll leave you with this. Larry Carlton, uh, pretty famous jazz guitarist. Yep. Best known probably for his work with Steely Dan, um, he performed at one of the jazz's clubs. And the one thing that he said to me, he said, "This was one of the first time that I played at a club where it just wasn't a bunch of old guys in black t-shirts." I love it. That's great.
1: That's great. Well, I didn't know that Larry Carlton had played with Steely Dan.
0: Yeah, he. Uh, a lot of the guitar solos in Steely Dan in the '70s and early '80s okay. were were was like... Sorry.
1: Yeah, no, that I mean Steely Dan,
0: that's just magical stuff. I'm 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 looking for the new Steely Dan. That's that's my thing. Where there's a bunch of jazz, but one of the great British critics once said, which I really loved, what he said about Steely Dan went as far as pop culture. And he said, what I loved about Steely Dan is they did jazz, but they never did too much jazz.
1: Yeah, it was a Steely Dan's unbelievable the way they played on the back of the beat. I mean, I just what an incredible. Uh, Well, all I can do is uh, check out FKJ. I think you'll like Uh, it. It's
0: it's, uh, magical sounding stuff at the moment.
1: Uh, Hey, great to talk to you. Glad we connected. Always
0: wonderful to talk to you. And again, uh, let's stay in touch. And thanks again. And the book is The Seventh Sense, Power, Fortune, and Survival in the Age of Networks. Thank you, Joshua. Thanks, Michael, for having me on. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.